Well, we return to our evening series in the book of Genesis, and we've come to Genesis chapter 9. Now, I hope you remember, um, let's bring ourselves up to speed a little bit. As the human race multiplies, there's a growing moral disorder. There's a deepening chaos. There's a crossing of the God-ordained boundaries. There's a sort of helter-skelter of accelerating wickedness, an explosion of sin and anarchy and violence. And so we read chapter 6 and verse 5 of Genesis. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the crowning evil, the crowning sin, is the blurring of the boundaries between heaven and earth, between the angels and human beings, chapter 6 and verses 1 to 4. And it's not just the human race that's plunged into this dark age of violence and anarchy and corruption, because we read chapter 6 and verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh, not just human beings. The animal kingdom itself corrupts into extreme and violent forms. It's a world of violence, a world of bloodshed and slaughter. There are monstrous creatures. There's a wicked humanity. There's physical corruption, moral corruption. The whole creation is just breaking down. The fabric of the world is is collapsing. And so God calls a halt. Enough. When wickedness multiplies, then know that the judgment of God is near. When the moral order collapses, God collapses the physical order. And he puts Genesis 1 into reverse, and the darkness and the deep and the chaos return. The flood, this universal flood, and everything that has breath perishes, except for what is in the ark. The ark, this world in miniature bobbing about on the waters, this ordered world amidst the chaos of the flood. And as we've seen, the ark, it comes to rest. The floodwaters recede. The door is opened. Noah, his family, their precious cargo leave the ark. And it's a new world. It's a new beginning. Noah is a new Adam. God, having washed the world clean, he's now putting it back together again. And so as we come to chapter 9, we read these They are wonderful words. Chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed. That word is is ripe with significance. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So although the earth is still cursed, Noah and his family will live under the blessing of God. God is determined to bless. And maybe as we read that, you, you heard the echoes of a, of a previous thing that God said to Adam um, at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 28. We'll come back to that in a minute. So the human race will continue in this new post-flood world. Humanity will thrive. It will flourish, be, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And the human race has to. It has to flourish because, of course, there is a promise made there in the Garden of Eden, the promise of a coming Savior, a Savior who will put everything right, who will carry the fate of the world 
on his shoulders. So the human race must continue if the Savior of Adam's descendants is to come, is to be born. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So humanity living in a cursed world, living under the curse, and yet humanity is also blessed. So we're wary of the world because it's cursed, and yet in this world we can enjoy the good things that God has given. There is blessing. But as I said, verse 1 is an echo of chapter 1 and verse 28. Before Adam sinned, God said this to him, God blessed them, speaking to Adam and Eve. This is 1, chapter 1, verse 28. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. To this new Adam, Noah... Now, there's sin in the world. God says this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, there is an echo, there is a repeat of the first part of chapter 1, verse 28. But something's been dropped out. What's happened to all this dominion stuff? Because chapter 1, verse 28 says, be fruitful and multiply. We've got that, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, fill the earth. But then it goes on to say, Subdue it, have dominion, fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over everything that moves on the earth. What's happened to all that dominion stuff? It's been left out here. Well, since the fall, man's relationship with the creation has changed. His rule is not what it once was, as the next few verses in chapter 9 will show. This may be a new world, a new beginning, a new Adam, But some things remain. There's sin. There's death. They're like monstrous, destructive giants that stalk the landscape of this world. So if there's to be no return to those terrible days before the flood, because sin is still in the world, death is still in the world, if there's to be no return to those terrible days of violence and bloodshed before the flood... God now puts in place safeguards. He wants the human race to multiply, to prosper. So there are safeguards to protect the human race. Safeguards to restrain the wickedness and sin that's in the world. Safeguards to control a violent and dangerous animal kingdom. Safeguards to ensure that that life continues, safeguards to prepare for the coming of the one who will save Adam's ruined children and, of course, beyond. Think of it like this. 22nd of May, 1940, the UK Parliament passed the Emergency Powers Act. It gave the government almost unlimited power over the life, liberty, property of everyone in the land. It was an emergency provision. Why? Because we were at war. And only when the war came to an end was the act repealed. With Adam's fall, 
with Satan's insurgency, with the human race in rebellion, with a world that is dangerous and untamed, where life before the flood was, was cheap and there was bloodshed and violence and sin and death were, were stalking the landscape. Here, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, what we have is emergency legislation. There's a war on. Emergency legislation to, to safeguard, to protect the human race, to keep the forces that would destroy the human race in check. And therefore to keep the light of hope burning as we await for the coming Savior. So, please have open in front of you chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. If you look at it, verses 1 and verses 7 are almost repeats of each other. They're like bookends. Verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's one bookend. Verse 7 is the other bookend. And you, plural, speaking to them all, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So there the bookends. What are they saying? The human race must flourish. The human race must grow. Fill the earth. But if that's to happen, between the bookends... Verses 2 to 6, there are three pieces of emergency legislation. Three pieces of legislation that are needed. So God now speaks and tells us what they are. Three pieces of legislation, three points. Emergency legislation number one. We'll call it Jaws. Now, 1975, Steven Spielberg film, found a huge man-eating white shark. Um, And if you were alive around then and... I went to see it, I was about 14. Oh, you thought twice about going back in the water. But how many sharks are there in the oceans? Some estimates say there are are a billion sharks in the oceans. Think of it, a billion. Now, of course, most of those sharks are are not man-eaters. Most of the sharks are not dangerous at all. But some, some, a significant number, have the potential to be man-eaters. So how many shark attacks were there in 2023? There were just 69. Sharks tend to leave us alone. Big teeth, meat-eating, but on the whole, they leave us alone. The birds. Short story by Daphne du Maurier, uh, which Hitchcock turned into a rather unpleasant film. What do they do? The birds unite. They gang up um, on the human race and violently attack the birds. But it's only a story. Now, I've had a, I think I was, I, I, I bought a, um, a mega pasty. Right? I think I've been out fishing and we had a triumph fishing expedition. And I was holding my pasty aloft in my triumph. And a seagull came and swooped down and took a pasty out of my hand. So there are moments, aren't there, where, where we. We get attacked by birds, but, but birds don't gang up, do they, and attack us. We don't live in fear of gangs or flocks of birds about to descend upon us. Or tigers. Tigers are wild, they're ferocious, they're dangerous, they're the biggest of the cats. And of course there are records and there are accounts of man-eaters. But again, by and large, tigers steer clear of people. They are far more threatened by us than we are threatened by them. 
And if in this country you take a walk through a woodland, glade, or a, or a heathland, uh, long before you encounter a poisonous adder, the adder feeling the vibrations of your approach has slithered away. Sharks, birds, beasts, snakes, they're dangerous, the dangers are real, but for the most part, they leave us alone. We are far more likely to be a threat to them. Why? Emergency legislation number one, verse two. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Now, before the flood, we read chapter, we've read it already, chapter six, verse 12. And the, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh, not just human beings, but all flesh. And we talked about this in a previous one. There's a sermon when dinosaurs ruled the earth. The animal kingdom morphed into these violent and monstrous forms. You only have to look at the fossil record. They scented blood, human blood. That's why, chapter 6, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence, much of that violence being directed by the animal kingdom against the human race. It was a constant threat. It must have felt like, if you were living in that time, war. But, says God, never again. And so he introduces this first bit of, of emergency legislation. Yes, the dangers remain. Animals are, are wild. They have teeth. There are dangers. But now they will fear man. They are now more threatened by man than man is threatened by them. It's a safeguard. So the human race can be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth. Now, before Adam sinned, how different things were. He was the king, the king of the creation. The, the, the animal kingdom, the creatures were his willing subjects. He ruled by right. And he didn't dominate or exploit them. And they didn't fear him. Under his wise rule, they were willing, they were docile, they were biddable. It was their instinct. It's the way they responded to the kings, the way God had made them. Everything was put under his feet. But when Adam sinned, it distorted everything. It changed the dynamics. It changed the instincts. And the animal kingdom became a threat. So now God resets the dial. We can't go back to the Garden of Eden, but we can restrain the animal kingdom. But now man's dominion, unlike the original intention, man's dominion is built on fear. The fear of you, the dread of you. You are more of a danger to them than they are to you. They will dread you. They will fear you. They will run away from you. It's a dominion based on fear. How far now does his remit run? Well, verse 3, to killing them for food and to destroying them if they threaten or take human life. Verse 5. So emergency legislation number one, 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Emergency legislation number two, food. Look at verse three. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So the human race is allowed to kill and to eat meat. Not exclusively a plant diet, but the freedom to hunt animals, to kill animals, to cook animals, to eat them. Maybe the earth is not as fertile as it once was, and man needs to supplement his diet with animal protein, animal fats. Maybe as the human race migrates across the planet, there'll be regions where you just cannot grow food. You can't grow crops. Vegetation won't root. It's going to be difficult. Think of what it's like if you go north of the Arctic Circle. But we've still got to eat. So now you can eat whatever you find. Maybe the Lord in his kindness is just giving us all things richly to enjoy. And actually, we, we just love eating the fatted calf. But the point is, meat is now on the menu. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Have you eaten squirrel? Um, I have. It's, it's, it's quite nice. Um, and when I wander around Marble Hill Park and I look at those rather slow-moving and rather plump squirrels, it sometimes crosses my mind that if, if civilization breaks down, I know where to find fresh meat. Nothing is forbidden. Meat's on the menu. But with the permission comes a restriction, verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So yes, eat meat, great. But it must be dead first. Its lifeblood must be drained away. You see, we're not animals. We're different from the animals. We've been made in the image of God, verse 6. That's why we walk upright. They don't walk upright. Now, in our garden, um, and you've probably got them in your garden or outside your door, we've got field mice. Field mice are quite, quite attractive to look at, quite pretty. And the field mice, they also find their way into the house as well. We've got two cats. And the cats, I mean, they're not very good at it, but they occasionally catch and eat the mice. What do they do when they catch and eat the mice? Do we find the cats, as it were, rustling up a barbecue? How do you like your mouse done? Is it rare, well done? They just eat the mice raw. Usually the head goes first, and there's blood, and blood that runs, and blood that, that, that leaves a... Particularly if they catch them somewhere in the house, um, there's blood on the, on the floor... Blood that's spilt, it's raw. And when the cats, when they scent blood, they kind of go into a frenzy. There's a kind of madness comes over them. And you know, they're actually, they're, they're still wild in one sense. Well, says the Lord, you're not animals. You're not to have a blood frenzy. And neither are you tyrants eating animals while they're still alive. Watching a mouse and the, the cat's trying to get it and, oh. That's not what you're to do. If you're going to eat meat, you kill the animal first. You drain its blood. You prepare the meat. You cook the meat. You're not animals. And actually then you eat the meat together. It's a mark of friendship. It's a shared meal 
to bind you together. And there's something more going on, isn't there? But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Again, before the flood, there was great bloodshed, violence, says God. Life was cheap. Well, says the Lord, never again. He's resetting the dial. We can't go back to the Garden of Eden. We can't go back to before the fall. But if the human race is to multiply, we can't go back to the way things were before the flood. Life comes with safeguards. This new world has to be legislated for, has to be controlled. So just because you kill animals, and you will be perhaps daily killing animals, don't begin to think that life is not precious. When you kill an animal, when you see its blood flow, when you feel the warmth of that blood, don't start thinking that bloodshed doesn't matter. Life is precious. So emergency legislation number two, food. And so to the third piece of emergency legislation, the death penalty. As we've seen, pre-flood days, life was cheap. Do you remember Lamech, his chilling boast? Um, He dominates his two wives. And he says to them, chapter 4 and verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Hear what he says. Anyone touches me, even if they're just a kid, I'll kill him. Because actually that's what I've done. That's the man that I am. And if God promised to avenge Cain sevenfold, who needs God? Because Lamech's vengeance is seventy-sevenfold. You touch me and I'll tear you to shreds. Proud, arrogant, violent, murderous Lamech. So it's no surprise, is it, that several generations later we're reading that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and that the earth was filled with with violence. Think of it, a world of Lamechs. People out for revenge at each other's throats. It's a lawless, vengeful, violent, wild west society where people take life freely, cheaply, easily. Blood is spilt. Life is cheap. And so says God, never again. He resets the dial. We can't go back to what it was uh, before the fall. We can't go back to the Garden of Eden. But if verse 7 is to be a reality, the human race is to flourish and to grow, neither can we go back to the days before the flood. And so for the crime of murder, says God, the ultimate penalty, the death penalty. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, okay, blood being spilt, the life is in the blood, it's a life that's taken for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. Okay, so if an animal takes a human life, the animal must be put to death. But it doesn't stop there. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God requires a reckoning. Or we might use the word a strict accounting. It's the language of justice. That's the point. It's a very carefully worded. It's very exact in its wording. It's the language of justice. It's the language of rewards and punishments. It's the language where people get what they deserve. And for murder, the punishment must fit the crime because that's justice. And we all believe in justice, don't we? What's the first thing, one of the first things a child will say? They'll say, it's not fair. It's woven into us. We all believe in justice. So what is fair for murder? What is justice if one human being deliberately takes the life of another human being? And God spells it out. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If you take the life of another human being deliberately, willfully, it's murderous then your own life is taken. Man is not a beast. Even fallen human beings still bear something of the image of God, for God made man in his own image, it says. Now, what's the recipe for for making uh, a human being? Well, it's DNA, isn't it? That code, that recipe for making a human being. Well, I share um, 70% of my DNA with slugs. But you won't be arrested for putting down slug pellets, will you? I share, and not me personally, but the human race, 98% of my DNA with pigs. Think of it. We share 98% of DNA, just 2% different. But if you kill a pig, you won't be arrested for murder. What makes man unique, different, what can... What confers upon him uh, a unique dignity and value is that he's made in God's image. God spells it out. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We're living, breathing, moving, thinking statues of God. So if I destroy one of those statues, the offense first and foremost is against the infinite God. Because I've willfully destroyed his image. That's why if I kill a pig, it's not made in his image. I'm not destroying one that's made in God's image. It's a different scale altogether. But to kill a human being, I'm destroying one made in God's image. And therefore, if I destroy one made in the likeness of the infinite God, in that sense, it's a crime without limit. It's a unique crime. And therefore, says God, I demand justice, a strict reckoning. And I demand, therefore, the ultimate penalty, the death penalty, the forfeiting of the life. Capital punishment. Well, who has the right to carry out the sentence? Well, again, God spells it out, doesn't he? Verse 5. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God may man in his own image. This is not revenge. 
This is not Lamech. Lamech was vengeful. What he was doing was selfish. It was all about getting his own back. This is not vengeance. This is justice. So the life of the murderer is to be taken by a fellow human being. Because that fellow human being is also made in God's image. And therefore the executioner, if I can call him that, he acts with God's authority. Acts, uh, Romans chapter 13. And of course, that's society. This, is, this is like a sort of little seed that's being sown. And as you go through Scripture, and as society develops, um, the verse will grow, won't it, into those lawful authorities. The police, the judiciary, um, those who are given the responsibility to execute. They're charged with arresting, trying, punishing the guilty. So it says, God, we can't go back to the Garden of Eden, but we mustn't go back to the pre-flood days when life was freely taken and there was violence. There, were, there was a world of lamecks, everyone at each other's throats. The death penalty. Okay, the death penalty. Objection. Capital punishment doesn't work. It doesn't deter murder. But it's not supposed to be a deterrent. This is about justice. Verse 5. For and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. That's the language of justice. It's not about a deterrent. It's justice. If we make capital punishment a deterrent, is to deter other people from murder, we break the relationship between the crime and the punishment. Justice is, you've committed the crime, this is the just response to what you have done. And instead of what you're doing, instead of justice, you're simply using um, the death penalty as a warning to others. And if you lose sight of what is just, well, crucifixion is an excellent deterrent, isn't it? Objection. Isn't it better to, to cure the murderer so the murderer can make something of his life and, you know, once he's sort of been cured of his, his violent and wicked tendencies, then he can give something back to society and be restored to society as a valuable member of society. But again, that's not justice, is it? And we know that. When you put, in order to do that, you've got to put crime and punishment into the hands of the experts. And if you put it into the hands of the experts, you take it out of the hands of the people. And what do you get when you do that? You create huge tensions and injustices. We've had it recently in the news, haven't we? The sense is everyone feels that the murderer has escaped justice. There's unfinished business. Justice hasn't been done. They've committed murder, and because they're regarded as being sick and they're taken away to be cured, well, they've got away with it. Now they are going inside for a cosy life. And what if they can't be cured? Which is sometimes why, and it's happened in this country, those who are murderers and they found they can't be cured 
of their murderous tendencies, they've been released back into society to kill again. So it's not about a deterrent, it's not about curing people, it's about justice, says God. For your life, bud, I will require a reckoning, a strict accounting. Not to return to the lawless days before the flood. Objection! If the murderer is made in God's image, doesn't he have rights? What about the dignity of, of someone made in God's image and you're going to execute him? What about that? Doesn't he have any rights? The answer is yes. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for for God made man in his own image. What justice does, it treats human beings as human beings. It treats people as people. It is a great kindness to treat the murderer with justice. He needs justice. He has the right to justice. There's a lot of talk about human rights. The most fundamental right that he has is to justice. Why? Because what it will do, it might, it might, and sometimes it does, it will humble him. When he realizes that for the crime he's committed, there is the ultimate sanction, he is to lose his own life, it humbles him. Brought to his senses. Seeking God's forgiveness. We read about the dying criminal, didn't we? In the older translations, it's the dying thief. It wasn't a thief. He was a terrorist. He would be guilty of murder. That's why he's nailed to a cross. Here's this terrorist. Here's this murderer. But he comes to his senses. On that cross. Hours to live. His life literally flowing away. But it's not too late to find peace with God. It's not too late for this man. And he turns to Jesus Christ and he finds forgiveness and so much more. It is what the murderer needs is justice. He has a right to justice. Because if justice will bring him to his senses, it might humble him. He turns to God, he's rescued, he's saved, and therefore he doesn't go to hell. And that's why Jesus says to this man, today you'll be with me in paradise. So emergency legislation number three, the death penalty. The death penalty which this country has abolished. So this government, this nation is living in disobedience to God. Because here's an emergency provision for all nations, for all peoples, until the end. It's interesting, isn't it? We think we're so civilized. But actually, what we've done, we've gone back to the days before the flood. It's antediluvian. When I listened to a, um, a debate in Parliament going back into the 80s, there was a new Home Secretary who believed in the death penalty, and there was a view that maybe the death penalty be, will be introduced. And there was a debate in Parliament. It was well worth listening to as people debated whether or not to reintroduce the death penalty. What struck me was that all who were against the death penalty, it wasn't resting on anything solid and fixed. There was no talk of justice. The arguments that were brought tended to be emotional arguments. 
because this is about justice. This is about a strict accounting. This is about a reckoning. This is the maker speaking to the human race which has gone astray, in which is a world where there's death and there's sin. And he says, this is the way it's to be, to protect you so you flourish, so you grow. And of course, if you abandon the death penalty, you reap what you sow. Well, time to close. The note we finished on here is justice, isn't it? Justice. We began the service by singing a chorus about the Lord being the perfect judge. So if we're talking about justice, and he's the perfect judge, and we've been talking about murderers and what they deserve, what about you and me? What do I deserve? Because I've broken God's law. I haven't loved God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I haven't loved those who are made in God's image. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. So what's the reckoning that God requires? Well, says the Bible, it's the ultimate death penalty. The wages of sin is death. The eternal punishment of hell. Says the Bible, I'm condemned. Condemned already. Justice must be done. I go to eternity via the judgment. Do you ever think about eternity? You go to eternity via the judgment. And I know on judgment day, before the judge of all the earth, there is no way I can prove my innocence. I'm guilty. I've broken God's law. God says, I require a reckoning, a strict accounting. So my only hope is in that promised Savior, the one who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived the perfect life I could never live. And he went to that cross to die the punishing death I deserve to die. All of which means... And that's the good news tonight, is that if I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His life is reckoned to me, making me acceptable to God. And my sin is reckoned to Him, and therefore justice has been done. His blood was shed on Calvary. Which is why, on that day, that dying terrorist, that murderer, what did he find? He found forgiveness. Peace with God, the assurance of everlasting life. Aren't they thrilling words? He says to the other who uh, simply wants to avoid his punishment, he says to him, don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, I'm a murderer, I'm being executed. I'm getting what I deserved, for we're receiving the due rewards for our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. He's the innocent, but he's shedding his blood. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. When every unclean thought and every sinful deed was scourged upon his back, and hammered through his feet. The innocent is cursed. 
the guilty are released. The punishment of God on God has brought me peace. The wonders of redeeming love. The Savior has come. He carried the fate of the world on His shoulders. He carries our hopes with Him to the cross. And He doesn't fail. Justice is done. His blood is shed. The blood of the innocent. As He bears our sins, justice is done. And then on the third day, He rises from the dead. The promised one to rescue us, you, me, all who will call upon Him to rescue us from the ultimate death penalty, from sin and death and hell. I don't know what some of you are waiting for. Some of you know this so well. The justice of God is already on the road. It's already tracking me. I don't know how close it is. Tonight, it could catch up with me, and then it's too late. The justice of God is tracking me. And when it gets me, when it catches up with me, what will God require? A strict reckoning, an exact accounting. And on that day when I face a judge of all the earth, what will I say? I don't know what you're waiting for, which is why the the good news of Jesus Christ says, don't delay. God only guarantees you one day when you may call upon Him and find Him, and that's today. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear His voice, run. Let nothing stop you, delay you, distract you. Run to Jesus Christ. Lord, you died on that cross. You shed innocent blood to to save condemned sinners. Well, Lord, I'm a condemned sinner. So, Lord, save me. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this emergency legislation, these truths which are laid down, these laws which are um, elaborated on right at the beginning, so much of which we've forgotten and put to one side and feel we're so clever and civilized. We thank you, our God, that you're so gentle and wise and good and patient and long-suffering. You take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from his wicked ways and live. And we thank you there is life in Jesus Christ. We thank you there is forgiveness and cleansing, a healing forgiveness, a wonderful cleansing, pardon in his blood. We pray, our God, that You'd awaken us to the danger with justice already tracking us. We pray that even tonight we might close with Christ, run to Him and find life and salvation and peace with You through the blood of Your Son because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.